0: My name is Margot Landman, and I am Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm pleased to introduce our speakers for today's interview. Scott Kastner is a professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland College Park. His book, War and Peace in the Taiwan Strait, recently published by Columbia University Press, is the very timely subject of our conversation today. Moderating for us is Jessica Chen Weiss, the Michael J. Zack Professor for China and Asia Pacific Studies in the Department of Government at Cornell University. From August, 2021 to July, 2022, she served as Senior Advisor to the Policy Planning Staff at the U.S. State Department on a Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship. Both Scott and Jessica are Fellows of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Jessica, the floor is
1: yours. Great. Thanks so much. And uh, Scott, what a pleasure to be able to read your new book. Um, I just, I learned so much. It is, I highly recommend it. You know, it couldn't be more timely and important and really bringing a great deal of, you know, rigor and strategic insight into the many dynamics that are making the Taiwan Strait so dangerous. At the same time, I think giving us, uh, while understanding some of the, the causes of the rising tensions, also. I think helpfully pushes back against the sense of uh, inevitability um, without being necessarily rosy eyed uh, either. Um, And so I uh, just can't uh, recommend uh, this book highly enough. And it's really a treat to be able to talk with you about it um, to um, process some of its uh, insights.
2: Thanks, thanks, Jessica. It's great to be here. and, And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about the book as well.
1: Absolutely. So let's just dive in. So first, uh, I think you bring forward you know, some really valuable insights from theories of, of bargaining and war, which is chiefly that even in a zero-sum uh, relationship, both sides, uh, in this case, uh, you know, Beijing and Taipei, both sides have an interest in avoiding war, and I think that includes the United States. And so that implies that there is uh, you know, some peacefully arrived at solution that is always preferable. But the question is, can that be located and even separate from locating one? All these years, there has been no war, although there have been many crises. Um, And so does that mean that a a bargain exists, or at least implicitly? Um, And what are the characteristics of the status quo? Um, And I think that you have provided a very helpful kind of diagram on what the status quo is, and and what are those sort of uh, pressures for uh, moving away from it? So maybe could you describe, first of all, you know, what is the status quo? How has it evolved? And, And what are some of the dynamics and pressures that are contributing to increasing tensions in the Taiwan Strait?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I, I think, um, so the status quo is clearly, it's somewhat kind of dynamic, right? And it, it kind of changes over time uh, in terms of kind of how the, the two parties kind of think about um, the current status quo in the cross-strait relationship. I think kind of broadly speaking, you can kind of think of the current status quo um, as, as largely a situation where Taiwan enjoys de facto independence and de facto autonomy um, from the PRC. Um, but where it lacks most of kind of what we would kind of think of as kind of the pieces of international legal recognition. Um, very few states have formal diplomatic ties with Taiwan. It's not able to participate in most international organizations and so forth. And it's a it it's a it's a status quo where where Taiwan, even though it kind of enjoys de facto independence, meaning you know, obviously it has its own government, which is democratically elected, it has its own military and so forth. It still calls itself formally the Republic of China. Uh, and it still um, has a constitution that dates back to um, the time when the, the Republic of China was, um, was based on the mainland. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it's kind of this ambiguous kind of situation where, uh, where Taiwan enjoys this kind of legal, uh, or this kind of status, this uh, de facto independence, but um, lack some of the trappings of kind of legal recognition and independence.
1: Great. Then can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how the status quo has been in some ways redefined or moved and, you know, looking mm-hmm. at the various administrations on Taiwan and as well as what might be, you know, China's shifting preferences as well?
2: Yeah. So I, I think the kind of the way that um, the Taiwan government under various administrations has kind of Defined its relationship and kind of thought about its relationship with China has changed over time, right? So for for years after the end of the Chinese Civil War, um, of course the, the the Republic of China government kind of viewed itself as the the legal government, the the, the rightful government of all of China, um, and kind of viewed the the PRC as uh, you know a completely um, uh, illegitimate regime on on the mainland. Uh, this all really changed pretty dramatically um, as Taiwan democratized. Um, and increasingly, there was kind of robust debate um, and open debate in Taiwan about uh, whether uh, Taiwan should be kind of thought of as part of China in this way and whether it should kind of think of itself as kind of the rightful government of China in this way. Um, and so we've kind of seen movement away from that where um, under Li dong for example, in the, in the 1990s, uh, the Taiwan government kind of... Um, uh, basically, outlined a position where it kind of conceptualized both sides as being kind of sovereign equals. Um, we kind of talked about the relationship being um, a state to state relationship, or at least a special state to state relationship. Uh, and you saw kind of similar formulations under um, under the Chen Shui Bian administration in the 2000 aughts. Uh, when the nationalists came back to power under Ma Ying uh from 2008 to 2016, there was kind of a kind of some acceptance of, uh, again, kind of this idea that Taiwan should be thought of as, in principle, at least a part of China, although kind of ambiguously. Um, and then the current government um, has not been willing to kind of endorse this formula, this formulation, this idea that Taiwan should be thought of in principle as a part of
1: China. Great. No, thanks so much. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's, I think it's very helpful background. And and, and we are, of course, uh, you know, heading into uh, a new uh, presidential election season in Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is term limited, and so I think there's a big question around what will the you know that future evolution of uh, Taiwan's own conversation about uh, its its status and its sovereignty. What form will that take in the context of uh, an election campaign? And so, in you in the book, you look at two sort of sources of potential conflict. Looking at first, well, not the drivers of, but the two parties here. So there's Taiwan revisionism, quote-unquote, and you have PRC revisionism, and you take those two in turn, I think that's a really uh, elegant way of of slicing into the, the many challenges that arise on, on both sides. So let's take first, I think, the question uh, of, of Taiwan, uh, quote-unquote, revisionism, um, because I think it follows nicely from, from our discussion here of these shifting uh, conversations. And so you argue, uh, you know, here that um, you know, Taiwan could uh, inadvertently cross Beijing's uh, red line for reasons largely due to excessive optimism that that somehow the PRC is bluffing, um, or that war might even end with a positive outcome for Taiwan, like maybe they could finally get de jure independence uh, in the the context of a war. And you said that this scenario is relatively straightforward uh, to prevent, because it's rooted in what we call information problems, or this sort of Uh, you know, insufficient information about Beijing's true uh, willingness to fight. And it could be relatively uh, simply or straightforwardly addressed through costly signaling by Beijing and efforts by Washington to deter this kind of uh, adventurism in the first place. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, while that the logic is straightforward, I have questions about whether or not we can count on such costly signals by Beijing to be interpreted accurately, so, in the wake of uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, we saw a series of uh, exercises and missile tests, and I think those were—I think those were largely understood as a, okay, this was not about a precursor to an invasion. This was about deterring or responding to what they see, thought, perceived as a provocation. But in the future, could we? How well will we be able to distinguish between uh, efforts to deter and punish rather than? Uh, precursors, uh, preparations uh, for an invasion. Yeah. That, I, so
2: that's a that's a, a good question. Um, but, so I, I think part of kind of the answer to that is is I, I think it's kind of important to kind of look at the context of um, what the the PRC is doing at a particular time. And so in this case, uh, you know, the, the PRC was kind of largely reacting to to something that happened. Right. And so I, I think that um, to the degree that you see kind of the PRC kind of reacting to, to events, it, it, it suggests kind of an, a, like an effort to kind of signal uh, kind of some sort of view about those events. And that um, uh, in, in this case, with the Pelosi visit, that there's a sense that um, U.S., I, I think it was kind of a signal that an effort to kind of signal that there's a lot of concern about kind of where the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is going. Um, and this was kind of an um, especially kind of high-profile episode um, that I think kind of served as a little bit of a focal point for kind of expressing some of that dissatisfaction. Um, I, I'd be more worried if we kind of saw, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of significant change um, in uh, kind of what the PRC was doing kind of in the absence of kind of some obvious uh, uh, Kind of event or series of actions um, like like that. So I think that's one way of kind of thinking about it. But um, but in in reality, it can be hard. Uh, and um, you know, I, I I think that military experts um, argue that there there are certain things that would probably have to occur for there to be kind of a credible uh, invasion scenario um, that would likely be kind of noticeable. You'd see some kind of significant mobilization of forces and so forth. Um, So there's stuff like that, but I think in general, it can be hard to kind of differentiate between um, when the PRC is seeking to kind of signal uh, dissatisfaction with what Taiwan and the U.S. are doing and kind of um, basically uh, uh, kind of play to its kind of status quo goal of preventing Taiwan independence versus um PRC efforts to kind of advance its own revisionist goals of uh unification.
1: Mm, mm. Great. And then I think the second piece of, you know, preventing or uh this kind of red line scenario you suggested was Washington uh discouraging uh Taiwan revisionism. And so I wonder whether and to what extent you think we can count on uh Washington to play that role of deterring rather than supporting it.
2: Yeah, I think that uh it's it's somewhat unclear looking forward um, given uh, the nature of kind of where things have gone in the U.S.-China relationship and where things I think have gone politically in the United States with regard to uh, the U.S. relationship with China. Um, If we kind of look back, for example, to the the Chen Shui-bian administration in Taiwan, um, where uh, you had some pretty clear signaling coming out of Washington that there was that there was really kind of a lot of dissatisfaction with um, some of the things that the Chen government was doing, um, that the U.S. saw as being um, uh, kind of symbolic steps to kind of highlight Taiwan's otherness from China in a way that um, didn't accomplish anything concrete in terms of improving Taiwan's security. Um, and so there was kind of concern at the time that uh, Taiwan might, um, its actions were kind of contributing to tensions that could escalate and that could involve the United States ultimately. Um, and so the United States became kind of increasingly critical of the Chen government and increasingly openly. Uh, so, uh, and, and that was, but that was a time where there, I think there was kind of a, a sense, a widespread sense that the, the U.S.-China relationship, um, was, uh, was not only a priority, but it was something that, you know, there were, there were, There was kind of a sense that there were a lot of kind of positives to this relationship and there was a lot of cooperation between the two sides on a range of international issues right things like the north korean nuclear issue i mean you could kind of go on right um and and there were kind of concerns about the implications of a a sharply deteriorating u.s china relationship for other u.s goals like the war on terrorism um in today's world it's um you know the the US China relationship has really kind of deteriorated so markedly and there's so much kind of i think less clear cooperation between the two sides on on a range of issues and there's kind of this uh i think sense in the United States that um that we're kind of moving into a cold war type environment um where it's it's it, i'm not sure that there's kind of that same uh counterbalance uh, where there's kind of this kind of belief that it's important to kind of maintain stability in U.S.-China relations and to not let the Taiwan issue kind of become something that leads to um, a great deal of instability in, in, in U.S.-China relations. So I'm, I'm I'm a little bit concerned kind of looking to the future about kind of whether the U.S. would um, act as a constraint in the same way that it did, um, say, during the Chen shui bian administration.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's turn now to the PRC revisionism, which I think uh, is on a lot of people's minds uh, in Washington. Um, You know, here, uh, you know, the question, a question is whether or not, um, you know, Beijing's, uh, you know, Beijing believes that uh, time is or is not on its side. Um, Officially, the rhetoric is that yes, uh, you know, the wheels of history are moving on toward reunification. Um, Nonetheless, I think that there is a great deal of understanding that. You know, political trends and demographics on Taiwan make the idea of kind of a peaceful process, uncoerced process toward unification extremely unlikely. Um, And so, uh, you know, interestingly, I I found that you argue that despite this pessimism about trends on Taiwan and and the trajectory of US Taiwan relations, um, PRC leaders may not necessarily decide that they need to act sooner than later. And I thought that was a really um, novel argument, and, and maybe you could say a little bit about why uh, you're less um, pessimistic than others. Yeah, so um, I think that the so I, there's
2: there's a couple reasons um, for my I mean I, I would say lack of extreme pessimism, but still <laughs> concern, let's say concern sure. about about this possibility. Um, but I, I don't. I guess I don't view it as, as inevitable by any means that, that you would kind of see conflict um, arise as a consequence of um, kind of a sense in Beijing that trends aren't on China's side. Um, and that, that, so the, the the couple of reasons are one, that I think trends are, are somewhat ambiguous um, if you just kind of look at them in the aggregate. Uh, so yes, on the one hand, there are a number of trends that are very worrisome from looking at it from Beijing's perspective here, right? And these include um, trends in Taiwan's uh, society and politics where there's um, clearly there's very little interest um, in Taiwan today in um, anything resembling unification with the PRC. Uh, there's growing Taiwan-centric identity on the island where um, in public opinion polls right, or surveys, the, the 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 large majority of respondents self-identify as Taiwanese rather than as Chinese or even as kind of having dual identity. Um, and there's also concern, uh, there's concern about you know the long-term viability of the nationalist party in in, in Taiwan, right? Which um, has typically been uh, more willing to uh, accommodate uh, PRC views, um, at least uh, to some degree, on sovereignty issues. And and there's concerns about um, about the the kind of the evolving U.S.-Taiwan security relationship, um, where there's worry that. Um, that the United States is kind of moving closer toward um, kind of a, a, a more kind of significant and formal security relationship with Taiwan. Um, and so these are all things that uh, that would contribute to a sense, I think, in, in Beijing that maybe time isn't on China's side, that Taiwan might be slipping away um, politically and socially, and that uh, a closer U.S.-Taiwan security relationship might um, over time kind of preclude the, the possibility of coercing Taiwan into unification. Um, on the other hand, there's other trends um, that are, are clearly in China's favor and the, the most obvious I think is kind of the shifting balance of military power in the region. Um, there's debate about whether that's going to continue into the long term. Uh, and so I, you know, and, and not being a military expert, I don't want to kind of get too uh, into the weeds on that, but but certainly. Uh, there has been a, a pretty sharp shift in the balance of military power. and to the degree that China is at least somewhat confident that its relative military capabilities are going to improve in the future, then that certainly gives a reason to be uh, patient. Um, and, um, and 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 so th- so I think there's some ambiguity in in trends. Um, and the other reason I'm not totally pessimistic about this kind of a scenario is that um, in order for it to make sense for Beijing to act sooner rather than later, um, Beijing has to be confident that a military solution is actually going to improve things, right? And it's going to kind of resolve kind of these concerns about long-term trends in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and I think that unless Beijing is very confident that it would um, prevail uh, in a cross-strait conflict and be able to kind of successfully unify Taiwan as kind of an endpoint of that conflict, um, it's it's more likely that uh, a, an armed conflict in the Taiwan Strait would make the things that Beijing worries about worse from Beijing's perspective, right? So it would even kind of further erode any kind of interest in unification with a a PRC government that's kind of willing to actually use military force against Taiwan. Uh, And so I think it would kind of um, intensify some of the social and political trends that we see in Taiwan. And it it would likely um, be reason for the United States to kind of step up its uh, security commitments to Taiwan as well. Um, So absent a, a very high level of confidence in Beijing that that it could actually kind of succeed at unifying Taiwan by force. I don't think that use of military force kind of resolves these concerns about um, long-term trends in the Taiwan Strait.
1: Mm. I find that very persuasive and also that it, it suggests that Beijing is more likely to engage in you kind know, of costly signaling but with even using military means, but that is different from uh, you know a full-fledged uh, assault or an invasion. But I think that there's a question as to whether or not Beijing faces a similar uh, challenge, even using military means short of uh, invasion, in particular, um, because you write that, you know, if voters on Taiwan elect a more revisionist leader, Beijing will have itself to blame, at least in part, um, because, you know, despite Tsai Ing-wen's, you know, relatively cautious stance, at least in comparison to her, you know, past uh, DPP predecessor, Chen Shui-bian, she still has moved the status quo uh, incrementally further away from Beijing's preferred outcome, particularly by declining to endorse the 1992 consensus or a one-China um, framework. And so, uh, so that you know that you've had this sustained campaign by Beijing that, in many ways, I think that uh, you know you you write that voters in, in Taiwan may conclude that what's the point of being cautious? It only brings more punishment. Uh, and similarly, in Washington, there's this sense that, well, most of what the United States is doing now is a response to uh, Beijing's sustained campaign to isolate and, and pressure Taiwan. And so I wonder here, then, you know, again, looking at the strategic dynamic from Beijing's perspective, could you say a little bit more about the challenge that Beijing faces in signaling resolve, but also trying to make credible its efforts to? assure voters in Taiwan and the world, frankly, that Beijing remains committed to um, a peaceful uh, reunification or unification process that would preserve Taiwan's autonomy. In other words, this sort of duality between the importance of making credible threats, but also then in turn undermining efforts at credible reassurance, which are both necessary uh, to deterring uh, you know, uh, changes to, to the status quo.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great way of putting it. Um... And, and I I, I it, it's I don't think I could kind of state the dilemma that Beijing faces kind of better than than you just kind of outlined um and and it's it is a it's a it's a fundamental dilemma that Beijing has kind of faced for a long time and its dealings with Taiwan right so how um how can Beijing credibly uh you know commit itself or kind of signal to Taiwan that it's um uh, committed to this idea of kind of peaceful unification where uh, Taiwan's um, some level of kind of Taiwan's interests would be kind of protected in the context of some sort of negotiated settlement when um, you know it's uh, it also kind of feels like it needs to signal strongly that it's it's prepared to uh, to use military force um, if Taiwan kind of moves away from uh, from China and tries to kind of formalize its independence. Right. And so that kind of suggests that um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Chinese interests are such that it's it's willing to kind of crush Taiwan um, uh, if 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 necessary. Um, and so uh, you know, the, I, I think there's kind of concern that right that um, in 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 Beijing that uh, or there, there, I, th- I think there's let me just kind of put it that I, I think there's kind of a recognition um, that this dilemma exists uh, and that there's no kind of easy. Uh, way to resolve it. Um, that uh, I, I, I do believe that there's kind of a sense that uh, the threat of uh, use of force is um, is really kind of critical because there's kind of a recognition that uh, in Taiwan, um, most people would support formal independence if they believed it could be achieved peacefully. Uh, and um, this really kind of uh, drives Beijing's dilemma in this regard that um, if there isn't this kind of underlying threat to use military force against Taiwan, um, that uh, that Taiwan would probably move toward formal independence um, and and public opinion is pretty clear about that, um, public opinion surveys in Taiwan. Uh, so I, I don't think there's an easy way out um, of this,
1: yeah, frankly. Yeah. So I want to... Um raise the question of symbolic politics, which, um, you know, doesn't play a great role um, in your story. And a frequent critique, which I, you know, frankly have also, um, you know, been subject to, is that these sort of rationalist models uh, kind of overweight the rationality as compared to other factors. And and I think that you, um, you know, deal well with the, the challenge of, um, you know, the symbolic nature of the goods here in dispute um nonetheless I think that there's a question as to in the context of domestic politics and election campaigns both in Taiwan and the United States whether or not these symbolic gains can really be um you know safely assumed uh to not trump um the kind of uh sort of pragmatism and, and what the strategic um kind of stances that might make sense um, uh, if you were to look at it in the way that, that you have. And so I wonder whether or not, um, you know, how we might think about what's to come, uh, you know, in terms of Taiwan's own politics. Uh, you spent a little bit of time talking about Vice President William Lai, who's sort of considered the frontrunner for the DPP nomination, previously called himself a you know, an independence worker, but of course has been more moderate since. Um, what role might this, um, you know, play, and, and to what extent do you have? Are you, I don't know, optimistic that the kind of the strategic uh, pragmatism will be able to rein in these kinds of, um, you know, efforts to to stand on, uh, you know, stand on principle, frankly, uh, rather than as we saw in the run up to Speaker Pelosi's visit. That the right thing to do is to stand up to Beijing, right? And if that's if those are the terms on which uh, these policies are discussed, it creates very little space uh, for uh, symbolism to be um, subordinate uh, to to pragmatism. Yeah, no, I think that's that's well put. And
2: um, I, so I I'll just kind of begin by noting that I I I. I Certainly, don't kind of dismiss the the possibility that um, that you could get a, a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, um, and and that would ultimately be rooted um, to a considerable extent in these kind of um, symbolic uh, disputes that you describe, right? Um, because symbolism is really important, and identity is really important, uh, and uh, you know, either a, a conflict that's rooted in kind of Taiwan's efforts to um, move further away from the PRC, that would be ultimately kind of a decision that's rooted in uh, a sense of um, identity in Taiwan, that, that Taiwan's not a part of China. Uh, and to the extent that you have a conflict that's kind of rooted in um, a PRC effort to kind of advance unification coercively against Taiwan, um, that would be a conflict that's ultimately rooted in this kind of this this idea that um, uh, that Taiwan is um, you know, should be part of China. And that's very much kind of an identity type, uh, or kind of a symbolic type um uh issue. Uh and and so I, I do view this as as by far the most dangerous issue in, in the US-China relationship. And it's dangerous because um at its core lies this kind of uh sovereignty dispute that is um, intractable in large part because of you know, these kind of symbolic and identity issues. Um and so I don't by any means want to kind of diminish the the degree to which this is kind of a dangerous uh dispute. And it's one that um, you know, certainly uh you can imagine uh uh you know either side, either you know, all, all three kind of parties kind of doing things that um uh for for largely kind of symbolic or domestic political reasons uh uh that kind of intensify uh, the prospects for conflict uh, in in the Taiwan Strait. Hmm.
1: So following the 20th party Congress, uh, which gave Xi Jinping an an unprecedented third term, we've seen signs of recalibration in Beijing's diplomatic posture, one that's much more interested in stability and improving previously strained relations. So, you know, given the dynamics and the strategic logic you've laid out, do you see any signs that Beijing uh, is interested in lowering the temperature across the Taiwan Strait.
2: Um, it's 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 hard for me to say. I uh, I think that there's I'll uh, I'll my sense is that Beijing um, does not want. Uh, kind of near-term conflict in the Taiwan Strait um, that, and again, this is just kind of my, you know, I don't have kind of any inside information about this, but just kind of reading um, kind of the situation in China right now, I think that uh, that the Chinese government is kind of dealing with a lot of pretty significant challenges, especially with kind of the ending of kind of zero COVID and um, some of the economic challenges that, that, that China is facing right now. Um, and so, I, I don't think that there's uh, a desire to see um, this uh, issue um, kind of further aggravating or kind of um, adding to kind of the the range of challenges that um, that the CCP leadership is kind of dealing with right now. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that the there there were you know there there's a desire to kind of see kind of some stabilization of the U.S.-China relationship and. Um, and it would be desirable, I think, from Beijing's perspective to kind of see kind of some uh, uh, lowering of kind of some of the the, the temperature uh, relating to Taiwan.
1: Mm. So maybe before we wrap up, I could just ask you quickly then, if you agree that, you know, a conflict in the Taiwan Strait is not inevitable, what are some um, specific policy recommendations that could help avoid uh, avert a tragedy?
2: Yeah, so I, I think that the, it's... Um, so kind of looking at it from a US perspective um I think that it's uh uh it's a uh, it's a balancing act um that you know even and and you've kind of written about this in in some of your writing as well Jessica um, that there's kind of a a need to kind of balance uh uh deterrence with reassurance uh, and um in this case uh, on the one hand I think it continues to be important for Um, for the United States to have a robust presence in the region um, so that uh, any effort to kind of, you know, resolve the Taiwan issue using military force by the PRC as a kind of a way of accomplishing the goal of unification is something that's seen as being a very, very risky uh, proposition from Beijing's standpoint, right? Something that um, would be both very costly, but also have kind of significant probability of, of failure. Um, so so deterrence is really important, and that that means not only kind of robust u s. Uh, um presence in the region, but it also means kind of reaching out to to and strengthening regional alliances and encouraging Taiwan to invest robustly in its own kind of defense capabilities. Um, but the kind of the flip side of this is that um I, I think Washington wants kind of a world where China also has kind of some stake in kind of a, a, a peaceful status quo. um and, uh, you you don't want a kind of a world where where leaders in Beijing kind of believe that um, that that you know the the status quo is so intolerable that there's really not that much to lose um, from uh, pursuing uh, conflict uh, in the in the Taiwan Strait. Um, and so I, I I do think it's kind of important and and even though it's kind of been challenging um, with with Xi Jinping's China given some of China's own kind of foreign policies in recent years um i think it's important to to uh, for, Beijing, for for the united states to to seek cooperation where it's possible uh in the us china relationship and um and to 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 kind of resist um some of these kind of um uh, calls for um more serious confrontation in the us china relationship such as kind of more widespread kind of scorch earth uh decoupling of the two economies and so forth because I think that ultimately um, would mean that Beijing has kind of less to lose um, from a conflict in, in, in the Taiwan Strait. So I think it's kind of a, a, a two-sided coin where um, deterrence needs to be um, paired with uh, reassurances, but also kind of um, uh, efforts to kind of make sure that that Beijing's kind of getting something from uh, a peaceful status quo. Mm, wonderful.
1: Well, Margo, I don't know about you, but I benefited so much from this conversation. Thank you, Scott, for writing this book and for sharing your you know, wisdom with the world um, and for tackling such a thorny but important issue.
2: Great, thank you, Jessica. Um, I enjoyed the, the conversation.
0: Thanks so much to both of you. I don't know whether to be optimistic, pessimistic, pessimistically optimistic, optimistically pessimistic. Um, definitely a challenging situation. We really appreciate your sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. I'd also like to thank the NCUSCR staff members behind the scenes who've made today's interview possible. We hope that those who have tuned in found the interview interesting and informative and that you will join us for future national committee programming. Thanks again and goodbye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.